BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Well, today is the 58th anniversary of the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. So I want to do an absolute deep dive, like one for the ages, one that will live on YouTube forever and or, you know, whatever, on an archive over on our podcast that people can look back on with my buddy Lamar Waldron. I'll get to that in just a moment. You know, recently we saw the exoneration of two people who had been accused of assassinating Malcolm X. This, I think, should cause us to pause for a moment and say, wait a minute, you know, a rush to judgment in Malcolm X, there's still questions around the Bobby Kennedy assassination. There's still questions about the Martin Luther King assassination. And of course, the JFK assassination is the, is the big one, right? Lamar and I researched this for decades. Lamar has spent more than 30 years working on this. Uh, we've written, we, he has written three books altogether. I participated in two of them. Um, one of those books, uh, the, the most recent, The Hidden History of the JFK Assassination, Lamar wrote himself. The ones that he and I wrote together, Ultimate Sacrifice and Legacy of Secrecy, are still out there and in print. We're going to be talking about two secret sources that gave us information about the JFK assassination. And we're going to do it, as I said, a deep dive on what we learned out of this. But first, I want to lay it all out. So with us now is uh, my co-author on those first two books, Ultimate Sacrifice and, and Legacy of Secrecy. Or I guess I'm his co-author. L- Lamar did the majority of the heavy lifting on these books. I participated in a lot of the research. And Variety called him the ultimate JFK historian. The Chicago Tribune called him one of the best investigative journalists in America. Lamar, welcome back to the show. Great to be with you again, Tom. And thank you, Lamar. So let's, let's start like you did in your most recent book, the hidden history of the JFK assassination. Who killed John F. Kennedy and why? Well, to give you the briefest summary possible, which even that'll take four or five minutes, the masterminds who killed JFK were three mafia bosses, Carlos Marcello, the mafia boss of Louisiana and much of Texas, Santo Traficante, the godfather of Tampa, and again, the mob boss of much of Florida, though Miami was kind of an open city, but Traficante was certainly first among equals, even in Miami. And then a guy who was not a godfather. Those first two were godfathers. And and if you know anything about the mafia, you know the godfather sits at the top of a mafia family. But the next guy involved, who was totally crucial, and one of the secret sources we're going to be revealing today actually told me, you know, that, that okay, you got two if you've got Marcello and Traficanti, but you need the third. And he was totally right. And he was Bobby Kennedy's right-hand man. We'll talk about him shortly. But that mafia don's name was Johnny Roselli. Johnny Roselli was the Chicago mafia's man in Hollywood and Las Vegas. Johnny Roselli worked for the mob boss of Chicago, a man by the name of Sam Giancana. But Sam Giancana was under so much pressure by the Kennedy Justice Department in 63, he couldn't really take an active role. But Johnny Roselli sure could. And so those three mob bosses, but they were something else. They were, in addition to being mob bosses, they were also CIA assets. All three of them had been working with the CIA since even before JFK became president on, originally, Vice President Richard Nixon's plots 
to have the CIA and the mafia work together to assassinate Fidel Castro. That all started before the 1960 election. This was back in 59, wasn't it? Uh, Nixon setting this up in anticipation of the election because Kennedy was beating him up so badly for letting Castro go, you know, take Cuba communist? Actually, even before JFK got the nomination in the summer of 60, you're exactly right. It started in 59 when uh, Nixon went to Jimmy Hoffa and, and had Hoffa be kind of the broker between the CIA and the mafia. But that didn't work. So in the summer of 60, they said, let's go more direct. So the CIA directly sat down and talked with Johnny Roselli. He got him in touch with, with his boss, Giancana, and most importantly, Santo Traficante. And then Carlos Marcello came into the mix. So, so it's important to remember, because some, some critics who either haven't read our books or haven't read anything we published since 2005, try to say, well, well, Waldron and Hartman blame it completely on the mafia, which is totally wrong. If anybody reads our books or has seen the Discovery Channel uh, specials produced by uh, the NBC News Dateline Division, they'll know we always bring the CIA into it. And so uh, those mob bosses were able to get other people in the CIA to work with them, including the head of operations at the Miami CIA station, a man by the name of David Morales, a lower-level agent by the name of Bernard Barker, a name familiar to some of your listeners, because he was the assistant to a guy your listeners, many of them will know, by the name of E. Howard Hunt. And then there were other mobsters involved as well, like David Ferry, played by Joe Pesci, in the Oliver Stone film, who was actually a CIA agent. And, uh, and a guy named John Martino. And so, so those men working together, along with uh, the head of the French Connection, the developer of the French Connection, uh, that brought in the heroin. There was a big heroin problem throughout the 50s and into the early 60s, and then again starting in the late 60s. The head of that operation, whose apartment you visited while he was still alive, uh, the outside of it, uh, a guy by the name of Michael Victor Mertz, who was deported by the United States government. Oh, I tried to track Dallas. him down to France. Oh, exactly I mean, yeah. right. <laughs> I, oh, I, so I flew to France and spent a whole week chasing that guy. <laughs> and you were, and, and you actually had the guts to go to his apartment, which is one on, on one of the nicest streets in Paris. Oh, yeah. the same street where the uh, uh, Duke of Windsor uh, uh, lived, you know. And so, and so those guys working together, and like I say, Mertz got deported by customs, INS. Uh, Actually, the day after the assassination from Dallas. Right. So, so those guys working together, uh, but they were all also working for the CIA. So, so again, the top guys in say they weren't involved because they didn't even know about these CIA mafia plots that were continuing into 1963. But, uh, yes, these lower-level guys we, we just mentioned. And, and get this, all the mob bosses confessed. You don't have to take our word for it. And they didn't confess for money. They, they confessed late in life to very trusted associates. And John Martino confessed. David Morales confessed. Bernard Barker almost confessed. And so, so those – and by the way, Bernard Barker was a Cuban exile. So many people say, well, was it the CIA? Was it, was it the mafia? Was it Cuban exiles? Well, Barker is a perfect example of somebody who was all three. But because they had those CIA connections, they were able to do what we'll be talking about, which is this super, super top secret plan that's really part of the reason everything has been kept secret for so long. And, and, and your listeners should know, we got the story. In, in most cases, in addition to 30, I don't want to diminish 30 years of work on our part or things where we spent that day looking through all the microfilm of, of the Tampa newspaper oh, that, that was we discovered. Insane. JFK was almost killed in Tampa four days before Dallas. Many of your listeners don't realize that. Um, but, and they also um, tried to kill him in Chicago before, da- before Tampa. Exactly. Three weeks before Dallas, I almost killed him in Chicago. Uh, four days before Dallas, I almost killed him in Tampa. Our books are the only place you'll ever read about that because we discovered it. And then I, I talked to the Tampa chief of police at the time. He says, boy, I've been waiting. I talked to him in the mid-90s. He's like, yeah, I've been waiting on this call for, yeah, for, for decades. I, I'm shocked nobody's called me about this because it was no secret. And so, uh, but we got, we got the inside story from two dozen people who actually worked with John and Robert Kennedy on, on these very things. Right, and we'll get into the details of that in just a moment. We're doing a deep dive into the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. Today is the 58th anniversary of his assassination. 
We're talking with Lamar Waldron, the author of The Hidden History of the JFK Assassination, along with Ultimate Sacrifice and Legacy of Secrecy. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Which I helped write, Ultimate Sacrifice and Legacy of Secrecy. So, Lamar, why was so much of this kept secret? Uh, you know, it, it, it seems, I guess, self-evident that all of these kind of low-level CIA guys were involved in the assassination of Kennedy. It wasn't known to people high up in the CIA, but it would still be profoundly embarrassing. Is that an accurate assumption? You know, David Morales, while he wasn't a top CIA official based in Washington, there was too much discrimination. He had Native American background. Yeah, he was definitely what you'd call a mid-level CIA official. Uh, Mm. Miami at that time was the largest CIA station in the world. Some of your listeners will know that the CIA is not supposed to conduct operations inside the United States. You're supposed to, you know, conduct operations in Russia or Germany or Cuba. No, the largest CIA station in the world in 1963 was on the campus, some secret buildings on the campus of the University of Miami, and he was the head of operations for the largest CIA station in the world. So, so he was definitely in the mid-level, but, but, but yeah, so there were, there were so many ways the CIA had been compromised, in a nutshell, thinking that, that money and supplies and personnel they were providing to the mafia, they thought, to help kill Fidel Castro. Once some of those got diverted to the JFK assassination plot, uh, you can sort of see the position they were in then and they're in now. But, but, but to get into the, to the biggest secret of all, a secret that you and I were complicit in keeping for many, many years, it's probably be good to go into to at least the, you know, the first four of the John and Robert Kennedy associates that we, we actually interviewed. Yeah, and I'd like, know, to, I'd like to do that when our commercial stations rejoin us in, in about two minutes, because I think that that's a you know, really big deal. Let me add this, since we've got a little under a couple of minutes. So, again, the important thing to remember here is there's a big secret we're about to go into shortly, but the CIA just had so much to cover up then. And and as we'll go into more detail later, but it doesn't hurt to say it now. So, So the CIA is keeping information from the Warren Commission, from the Rockefeller Commission, from the Church Committee, the Senate Church Committee in the mid-70s, from the House Select Committee on Assassination in the late 1970s, and from the presidentially appointed, congressionally created, JFK Assassination Records Review Board in the 1990s. So most people think there was only one uh, official government committee, the Warren Commission. The mainstream media would like you to think that, right? Mm -hmm. But... um, In fact, there were at least five, in many ways more, but there were at least five official, very public government committees. And so, you know, once decisions were made to keep stuff from the Warren Committee, the Warren Commission, you know, they, they then kept keeping it secret from these others. And then... They've just kept keeping it secret today because it would be so incredibly embarrassing for them to admit that these CIA assets that they were using without presidential authority, that's important, to try to kill Fidel Castro, because they were continuing those 1960 plots right up until and after JFK was killed, you know, that, that would be, you know, those plots are somewhat known today, but the degree to which those plots were used to kill JFK is not known widely today. We'll continue our conversation with Lamar Waldron, author of The Hidden History of the JFK Assassination, in just a moment. It's in the Tom Hartman program. We're doing a special three-hour deep dive. Who killed Kennedy and why and how? Stick around. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes 
into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. On the line with us is Lamar Waldron. Uh, we're talking, we're doing a deep dive today into the Kennedy assassination. It's the anniversary of the assassination. And so, Lamar, let's start, you know, where we, where you and I kind of began back in the 90s when we were, or in the 80s, actually, when we were first doing a real deep dive into this. And that would be with, uh, with John F. Kennedy's Secretary of State, Dean Rusk. That's exactly right. And you raised another point. People should know what got us into this, because it's going to come up again when we reveal another secret source. Um, was a 1988, fall 1988, special by the most prominent journalist of the 1970s, and was still pretty well known in the 80s, a guy by the name of Jack Anderson. And he did an, uh, a special on the 25th anniversary. You and I both saw it. Uh, Jack Anderson had known Johnny Roselli, and, and, and interviewed him and used some of his information. And at the end of that special, it said, and I, I'm paraphrasing here because I haven't seen it in quite a while, that there were still hundreds of pages of JFK assassination files still secret. So you and I saw the end of that and it's like, well, why, why, what on earth could be key? You know, because that's the 25th anniversary, fall of 88. You know, what, what, what could be so secret that there were still hundreds of pages of files secret? Of course, I mean, we were so naive because they released four and a half million pages since, but that doesn't even include all the really good stuff. So... So, so that's what got us into it, and then um, we were uh, working at a corporate communications company that you owned. Yeah, and, an ad agency, and, yeah. And, 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 and doing the newsletter for Georgia Public Television, the PBS outlets in Georgia. And, and Dean Rusk, who had been JFK's Secretary of State uh, and, and the Secretary of State for JFK's successor, Lyndon Johnson, through much of the 60s, too, um, and... And, you know, so he was a distinguished guy. They were going to be doing a, a program of his oral reminiscences. And I, I read his uh, biography in preparation for that. And, and so the plan was we, we'd interview him for the newsletter. You know, I, I would interview him for the newsletter. You, you and I would you know, talk about everything ahead of time. And, and then at the end of the conversation, I was going to ask him a question or two about, you know, what could be so secret that it would still be secret after 25 years? Plus, I'd come across a Washington Post article that had mentioned in the obituary of a Cuban exile that this particular Cuban exile had been part of JFK's plans for a second invasion of Cuba in the fall of 1963. Well, for your listeners that, that are, are not, don't have the gray hair you and I have, uh, you know, once Castro came to power, first uh, Richard Nixon tried to assassinate Fidel. That didn't work. Uh, they then, the CIA sold JFK a bill of goods saying, well, we'll train these Cuban exiles to, uh, to go in and they'll, you know, uh, uh, yeah, 1,500 or so Cuban exiles, yeah, they can conquer all of Cuba. Castro's 100,000-man militia and army, yeah, these guys can take care of that. And, and, of course, the CIA didn't believe that for a moment, but the CIA was still working with the mafia without telling the new president. They were still working with Traficanti, Roselli, and Marcel. At the same time, Bobby was aggressively prosecuting these mafia guys. Right, because that, that's how JFK became president in the first place, was going after, on televised hearings, widely publicized hearings, going after the mafia, including Traficanti, dragging uh, Sam Giancana, Roselli's boss, and Carlos Marcello in front of the Senate committee. So Senator John F. Kennedy and his brother, the committee's counsel, Robert Kennedy, that's how JFK came to prominence, was going after the mafia and their ally-slash-banker, uh, Jimmy Hoffa. And so once, once JFK became president, he appointed his brother, Bobby, attorney general. You know, people can debate the merits of that, but, but it was no Trump-like situation. I mean, Bobby, everybody, you know, because you and I have 
talk to, you know, a bunch of people that work with Bobby. And, and, and yeah, Bobby went after the mafia harder than anyone because the mafia had it easy under Nixon. He'd been in the mob's pocket since he began. Well, and J. Edgar Hoover, too, was being blackmailed by them. Exactly. So, you know, so finally they were going after the mafia. So unknown to Bobby, uh, Attorney General Robert Kennedy and President Kennedy, you know, while the Bay of Pigs is going on, the mafia is still working for the CIA um, because, you know, yeah, there's no way 1,500 Cuban exiles are going to conquer Cuba or or defeat Castro's 100,000-man army militia. But, you know, the hope would be that even though JFK swore U.S. troops would never be used in Cuba, the CIA was certain that once once Fidel and, and and probably Raul and Che Guevara were all killed by the mafia, that then JFK would have no choice. There would be chaos in Cuba. A lot of Americans still lived in Cuba, had had interest in property that had not quite yet been nat- all nationalized, and so that was what was supposed to happen. Well, that didn't happen. That was a big failure. Um, and then a year and a half after that, something in 1962 called the Cuban Missile Crisis. Very important. And because that's when we all thought, and I don't know about you, but I know for me, you know, we would go to the bomb shelter in elementary oh, school. I, and we were, we were terrified. I was terrified. I was a little kid. I was terrified. We thought the world was going to end. We thought it was going to be a nuclear holocaust. Exactly right. So that was just a year before JFK's assassination. So that's going to bring us up to what I'm going to reveal that, that, that Secretary of State Dean Rusk told me and us about this big secret that it's the reason one big reason for so much secrecy even today we'll get to that in just a moment with lamar waldron stick around it's a deep dive into who killed john kennedy how and why with lamar waldron author of the hidden history of the jfk assassination Welcome back. Tom Harmon here with you. We're doing a deep dive into the assassination of John F. Kennedy. Lamar Waldron and I wrote two books, Ultimate Sacrifice and Legacy of Secrecy on this, and then the ultimate book, which Lamar wrote himself more recently, titled uh, The Hidden History of the JFK Assassination. Uh, we were just talking about how uh, back in 88, Louise and I owned an advertising agency in Atlanta. Uh, it was called the Newsletter Factory. And we were producing a newsletter. We also produced a newsletter for the Kennedy Library, which is how I got in to meet Dave Powers. We'll talk about that later. But um, we were producing a newsletter for the local PBS station in, in uh, Atlanta. And Dean Rusk was coming in to do an oral history. And uh, Lamar uh, went over to interview him on our behalf. Lamar was running the seminar division of our company, which, by the way, we, we conducted seminars for the NSA. We, we taught the CIA. We taught Army intelligence. We taught everybody. Do you remember when the FBI paid for their, it was like $300, and they paid with, uh, I think, like their, their drug buy money? Yeah, it was, yeah, it was like, the, yeah, these, these FBI guys showed up, and they paid in cash. <laughs> it, was, it was funny. Anyhow, so uh, you went and interviewed Dean Rusk. And, right. and, and he dropped and, this bombshell that, that got us just nuts on, okay, we've got to figure out who killed Kennedy because of this. And who can tell us more about what Rusk revealed. So, right. so the, first, you know, the first half of the interview, Rusk had his, his, his answers. I mean, it was, it was the same because we got to see an advanced showing of that, that uh, special that was going to be on, on Georgia PBS and, and, and the biography. I mean, he had his rehearsed answers about, you know, Vietnam and why it wasn't such a bad idea to start with. And then it turned into a bad, you know, and, and it was, you know, just, you know, it was just the routine stuff. And then at the end, uh, with the tape recorder still rolling, I said, by the way, a, a friend of, of, of mine and I are, are working on a book. Uh, at that time, it was going to be a novel. And, and I just had a couple questions for you. And he said, sure. And, and I said, well, you know, there was this one sentence in this otherwise big, uncontroversial Washington Post uh, article, obituary for a, a Bay of Pigs veteran, that said JFK was planning a second invasion of Cuba in the fall of 63. And I, I haven't read that in any history book or seen it in any documentary or anything ever. Uh, is, is the Washington Post wrong? Are they right? What's the story? And he's like, oh, no, no, yes, yes, we were going to do that. Yeah, we were. And so, and I'm like, okay. This right is Kennedy's Secretary of State. JFK Secretary said, is telling me something that's not in any history book, in any documentary, in any released document, 
anywhere, because by that time we'd been to the um, to this private uh, archives in Washington. We'd been I'd, I'd been to the National Archives, and so it was just like okay. So and 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 his his demeanor changed completely. He's he's basically not the most exciting person. He's a pretty dry guy, and, and his his special the oral history was dry. His incidents, most of them in his biography, were dry. But boy, he became animated because he said, "You know, I haven't talked about this in decades to anyone because it was so secret at the time." I'm like, "Okay." In fact, it was. He said it was so secret, I didn't even know the full story on the plan until after JFK was assassinated. So right. we're talking about a plan so secret that JFK's own. Secretary of State, and later on I found out even JFK's own Secretary of Defense, Robert McNamara, really didn't know the full scope and, of this and, plan and until let me, after JFK died. Right, and let me add very quickly, we'll get to this later on in the program, but, you know, I, I went to Washington, D.C. and met with a general who was involved in this who essentially threatened my life if I ever went public with this. Uh, this well, let's, it, that's let's, how top let's secret that, that plan was. We're going to be getting to that in just a few minutes. So, so, so bottom line is, he said, he said yeah, yeah, we were, we were going to do that. It was, it was a live program. This wasn't a maybe, an if. No, this was, this was a go. And this and is after the Bay of Pigs. Well, this is, yeah, this is, so Bay of Pigs, April 61, Cuban Missile Crisis, October 1962. So now we're into November 1963. While JFK, I mean, literally when JFK died, this plan was, was imminent. And I asked him, I said, no, look, so we know, uh, you know, Congress, uh, the Senate and the House, they found out in the 70s the SA was working with this mid-level Cuban official that really didn't have much power, but he had a big travel budget so he could go to Europe and places so we could meet a CIA contacts named Rolando Cubela. Is, is, is that what you're talking about? He says, oh, no, no. He was so dismissed. He said, Cubela was so far down the totem pole compared to the person we were dealing with, you know, that the Kennedys were dealing with. And so, okay, so, so you know, there are not that many high-level leaders in Cuba, you know. Um, che and, 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 and Raul and, of course, Fidel Castro were the only three I knew. And so he didn't give me the name of the person, but he said he was, I said, you know, so, you know, there's those three. And then he said, yeah, so basically the guy the Kennedys were working with was, I, I, he implied he was, he was higher than Che. So that would pretty much make him the number, the third most powerful man in Cuba. So, so this, this was just stunning. From, and uh, by from the way, John Kennedy's secretary of state confirming that there was another plot to assassinate Castro that involved one of the top three Cuban officials that that Bobby and John were, and this is important. Your, your listeners will hear this again. He said, but we didn't look at it as an assassination plot. We were. It, it, it was going to be a coup. This 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 high guy, high level guy in Cuba was going to overthrow Fidel. Yeah, we. It was. It was going to be secret that we were secret forever that we were secretly helping this guy. And so, you know, it would just look like, you know, Castro had been killed, and we later found out who he blamed on. And so, um, you know, no one would ever know that the U.S., in other words, you know, JFK wouldn't be taking credit for this in the 64 election. No, it would just be this thing happened in Cuba, there was this coup, and so this new guy's in charge, and we can deal with this new guy. And, and by the way, people don't have to take my word for that, because get this, the tape recorder kept rolling, because I kept looking at it, and the little wheels were spinning. This was old, you know, cassette tape recorder. But as soon as, as, soon as Russ started talking about the secret plan, when you listen to the tape, it it fades out. So you know, make of that what you will. Hmm. But but people have to take our word. You can if if you Google Vanity Fair, Dean Rusk, and probably Tom Hartman or Lamar Waldron. Vanity Fair confirmed this with Rusk, and he he did it on the record and said, "Yep, yep, that's that's what we were going to do." So so after Rusk, then you and I were looking hard. So so who else can we talk to? You know, the obituary in the Washington Post that mentioned it. Well, that guy was dead, and. Uh, the first FBI agent to ever go up against J. Edgar Hoover, a guy by the name of Bill Turner, William Turner. Who was such a good guy. Such a, such a uh, great guy. I highly recommend we, we, his We had book. such, yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead. You know, he's just a super guy. I mean, yeah. you know, this is when presidents, attorney generals, and senators were all afraid of Hoover. And, 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 and Bill Turner went up against him and, yep. and you know, got drummed out of the... FBI, of course, but that let him get into the JFK stuff. So he had written a book, and he had interviewed a Cuban exile, apparently close to Bobby Kennedy, by the name of Enrique Ruiz Williams, who went by the name Harry Williams. Right. 
And it, so Bill's book, uh, by the way, that was The Fish is Red, wasn't it? Was the title well, of the book. Fish is Red, and then it was reissued as Deadly Secrets, and right. I think it may even have a new name now. But like I say, yeah, William Turner, you know, if he wrote it, you definitely want to read it. And so he even sent us his interview with Harry. He said, look, I don't want you guys starting from zero, because he'll just cover the stuff he's already told me. You want to get more than what he told me. So, so that was just great. So, so we didn't have to just cover what, what Harry had already told Bill. We, 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 we said, okay, we know all this stuff. Now let's, let's ask the next questions and get this. So turns out Harry was a big hero of the Bay of Pigs. He wasn't a leader of the Bay of Pigs. He was a hero. I mean, he was a hero. He was badly wounded. He was in a field hospital with, with maybe 20 other of the most badly wounded uh, prisoners after they were all captured by Fidel. Fidel Castro goes into the field hospital. Harry reaches into his boot when Castro's about six feet away from him, and even though Harry's badly injured, he pulls out a pistol, points it at Fidel Castro, and fires. Unfortunately, Harry's fellow prisoners had thought Harry was so badly injured he might commit suicide with that pistol. They had removed the bullets. Fidel, though, so Fidel's guards all jumped on this in badly injured Harry. Fidel waved him off. He said, look, this, this guy's got guts. He's got courage. Let's, let's take him and these other guys, let's, you know, put, put, put him in a good Cuban hospital. So, you know, so wow. for trying to kill Fidel, Harry got in a good Cuban hospital, and, and a guy came to visit Harry Williams, a guy who was the head of the Cuban army the number three guy in Cuba, the highest black official in Cuba, because, of course, uh, uh, Fidel and, and Raul weren't black, and, and Che wasn't even Cuban. So uh, they had known each other back when, when uh, Commander Juan Almeida, was, uh, who was then the head of the Cuban army, and would stay the head of the Cuban army for years, uh, back when, when he would guard Harry's car, when Harry would go to that famous restaurant in Havana, I think it's called the Floridita, that, that anyway made famous. And, and, and when, when Almeida was a teenager, uh, um, you know, Harry would pay him to watch his car to make sure nothing happened to it, but they stayed, they stayed friends. And so now Commander Almeida is the head of the Cuban army, and he comes to see Harry. And, and we now know, Harry didn't even know this. Commander Almeida had made it clear two months before the Bay of Pigs that he was ready to defect and help the United States. But the CIA didn't act on that, even though their sources were telling them this, because the CIA was confident the mafia was going to kill Fidel, so they didn't need the head of the Cuban army. How stupid, right? But anyway, uh, Commander Almeida told Harry, look, if you ever get the chance to convey information to, 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 to John Kennedy, uh, tell him that, that I think Fidel's going off the rails. It's, it's not the socialist paradise. It's, it's on its way to becoming a dictatorship. You know, a bunch of people helped um, overthrow the Nixon-supported dictator Batista, but, you know, a lot of those guys had gone by the wayside. Either they had to fled or they'd been killed. And so, so you know, th- that friendship was rekindled there. Harry and the other badly wounded prisoners were released and told to go to the United States and, and basically they had until the end of 1962 to get the Kennedys to ransom the other Bay of Pigs prisoners, or Castro implied he might start shooting them. And so Harry came to the United States. He, he, you know, he was regarded as a total hero by, by all the other Cuban exiles. And, and, and he was the one that, that went to Bobby Kennedy and said, you've got to do this. And, and things dragged out. And Richard Nixon, responsible for the whole mess, torpedoed early plans to get the prisoners out. So uh, this, this became a very dramatic thing. And Harry and Robert Kennedy got those prisoners out by Christmas of 1962. Yeah, and it was an amazing story. I, I remember Harry telling us, we're talking with Lamar Waldron. And we'll be right back. It's a, it's a deep dive into the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. 
Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. And welcome back to talking with Lamar Waldron, the author of The Hidden History of the JFK Assassination, and the co-author with me, or actually I'm the co-author with him, of Legacy of Secrecy and Ultimate Sacrifice, two other books about the Kennedy assassination, the Bobby Kennedy assassination, and the Martin Luther King assassination. Um, so, uh, Lamar, we've, we've gone from Dean Rusk, uh, Kennedy's Secretary of State, to Harry Williams, who was the hero of the Bay of Pigs and was helping organize this plan along with the head of the Cuban army, uh, Juan Almeida, to overthrow Castro or assassinate Castro uh, with a, a, a Cuban-aligned patsy, essentially, uh, taking the credit for it in, on December 1st, 1963. And, uh, you know, we're, and, and now we are talking about uh, John Nolan, right? Right, right. And by the way, it wasn't a Cuban-aligned patsy. It was a Russian-aligned patsy. Oh, Russian, thank you very much. Russian or Russian yeah. sympathizer. In Cuba. Would- it would be right. Who would be in Cuba to, as in Harry's own words, take the fall? Yeah. So, so, uh, so, so, John Nolan, the the top assistant. I mean, Bobby Kennedy had a secretary, Angie Novello, um, but but you know, John Nolan was his his high level executive assistant. You know, number two could speak for Robert Kennedy. Saw every top secret piece of paper. So, and it was in fact John Nolan who was who was helping to to route those calls. You know, deciding who could speak to Bobby Kennedy the afternoon of the assassination while Bobby was at his estate, and who couldn't. You know, you know. So, so, so he was making sure the right people, like CIA Director John McCone, knew where Bobby Kennedy was, and you know, and, and blocking all the the non-essential calls. So, what happens is, so JFK's body is is taken from Dallas against the wishes of the Dallas authorities, flown to Washington on the same plane where Jackie Kennedy and new President Lyndon Johnson are. And then it is taken to Bethesda Naval Hospital, where there's an autopsy, which has been the subject of many books. I mean, books not just about the JFK assassination. Many books have been written just about the autopsy because there are so many inconsistencies and mysteries and things that don't add up. And the the main autopsy doctor burning his notes for his first autopsy reports in his fireplace because he didn't even know about one of the main wounds into JFK's body when he finished the autopsy. So all those questions about the autopsy, as far as I'm concerned, now they've all been answered because when so, so, so John Nolan. It was really we're going to get together for lunch in Washington. He was going to leave his, you know, the biggest law firm in Washington, where he's a senior partner. Meet me for lunch. We were going to talk, you know. And, and the only reason he was talking to me, he, he made it clear, was because he was still friends with Harry Williams after all those years. They were still close. He trusted Harry, and if Harry said I was okay to talk to, he would he would give me an hour of his time. Okay, so. Uh, so then I get to Washington. I call him and say, so we need to make some lunch plans. He says, no, no, can't. I, I can't meet you for lunch. You, you just come to the office. Okay. So I say, okay, I'll come to the office. And then he's like, no, 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 we can't do that. Somebody might see you here. And, and again, this is talk, you know, this is because we're going to be talking about a plan that's been kept secret since 1963. This is 1992. And then he's like, I, I, I just can't see you. I'm like, look, I flew all the way up here. Harry said you'd be a good guy to talk to. So, so he agrees to give me a phone interview, okay? We start talking. Every time, and I'm, 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 at, I'm not at the Mayflower where we usually stayed, but I'm at the, uh, I think the Grand Hyatt where we would do our, our communication seminars. And every time I would get, you know, we talk about general stuff, and you know, he was a Korean veteran. My dad was a Korean veteran. He was about the same age when he was working for Robert Kennedy that I am. I was when I was talking to him on the phone. So yeah, I was looking for those things in common. And but whenever I would get close to talking about the coup plan, oh, the, the worst crackling would come on the phone, and we would get cut off. I mean, it didn't happen once. It didn't happen twice. It didn't happen three times. It didn't happen four times. It happened at least six times. Finally, the last time, I because I'm worried. You know, he's you know, we, somebody doesn't want us to talk about this. So I go outside. Luckily, there's a bellhop. I whip out a ten or twenty dollar bill. Say, look, get me a phone out of one of these other rooms. Plug it in in here and just take my phone. Put it in the other room. 
you know, so Bellhop does that. Uh, Bellman, I should say. And um, and sure enough, no more problems. There was just something funny about that phone. And so he confirms everything Harry had told us about the coup plan. He confirms that E. Howard Hunt and James McCord were the top two CIA agents assigned to help Harry, not to give Harry orders, but to help Harry. Uh, which, by the way, E. Howard Hunts, who was a big racist, super resented, um, and that and that Bernard Barker was was E. Howard Hunts' assistant for the coup plan, and so he's confirming all this stuff, and 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 then we start talking about the autopsy, and and he says, you know, well, Bobby had me meet him in Washington, and then Bobby was up in the seventeenth. Seventeenth floor family suite at Bethesda Naval Hospital. I was down in and just outside the autopsy room on a phone, and I was relaying Bobby Kennedy's orders to the White House physician, Admiral Berkeley, who was in the autopsy room the whole time. And then Admiral Berkeley was giving orders to the autopsy physicians, sometimes through the commanding officer of Bethesda Naval Hospital. So sometimes it would go, you know, it would literally, Bobby's 17th floor with Jackie. He's on the phone with Nolan. Nolan's relaying what Bobby wants to um, Admiral Berkeley, the White House physician. Admiral Berkeley is then either relaying those orders directly in some cases, to the autopsy physicians or to the commanding officer, now, Bethesda, now, who has I, been relaying Bobby's wishes to the autopsy if, physicians. If, if I can who just, pretty much said, yeah, Bobby Kennedy controlled the autopsy. Right. So it was and not, if, I, if I can just insert real quickly here, at that point in time, Bobby Kennedy believed he knew who had killed his brother. Oh, right, right. And he was assuming. And he thought he some, and he thought he had some role in it. Well, Bobby Kennedy thought that, yes, yeah, somebody somehow connected with the coup plan had turned part of the coup plan against JFK. Right. And, and this had to be covered up no matter what, because this was right. still a live plan. And get this, Bobby Kennedy was part of the cover-up, as John Nolan confirmed in a document you got at the, at the Kennedy Library in Massachusetts confirmed, and then I got 20 more pages. Since September of 1963, a secret subcommittee of the National Security Council, overseen by, you know, on the orders of Bobby Kennedy, was making plans for what to do if an American official was assassinated. And it seemed in any, any way somehow related to Cuba. Because they were worried, what if Castro found out about the coup plan and tried to retaliate? So since mid-September, the secret subcommittee had representatives from, from the, the State Department, from the CIA, from, from the Department of the Army in the form of uh, Alexander Haig um, and Joseph Califano. They were making these plans. So right. no one... I, Again, if I could interrupt just to clarify, this, this is after the, after the Cuban Missile Crisis, and their fear was that if Castro found out that Kennedy was going to try and assassinate him on December 1st, 1963, number one, he could thwart it, but number two... If it happened or if, if it got publicized, it could cause Russia to intervene again, and it could lead to World War III. It could lead to the extinction of the entire world or a large chunk of it. Exactly, because we had almost had World War III the year before, and they worried about things like, well, maybe the U.S., I mean, maybe Cuba might blow up an airliner. But like right. I say, their biggest, one of their biggest worries was that what if an American official got assassinated before the coup plan and there looked like there was some Cuban connection? So right. Nolan, so, so we've only got about 21, I believe it's 21 pages of what are probably close to a thousand pages of official U.S. government plans for what to do with an American official's essay. We've got 21 pages. The rest of those are supposed to be released December 15th. Of course, they won't be. But John Nolan saw every one of those pages. He saw every one of them. So he's telling me, he says, look, that's why JFK's body didn't have the autopsy done in Dallas. And he gave me this example. And by the way, you won't find Nolan's name in any of our books. He is referred to as a Kennedy aide. So he's not named, you know, because this is one of the first detailed times we're ever talking about this. So his name is not in print. He just passed but, away. Well, he, he passed away. Actually, he passed away almost two years ago. Oh, I'm sorry. I but, thought, okay. but, but then, you know, then, then we had COVID. I, I didn't want to rush right out and do it. And, mm -hmm. and I've mentioned him on your show exactly one other time with no real yeah. detail. So, so what Nolan gave me this incredible example, he said, look, what if, the, what if, what if a, a week before the coup plan, it looked like the U.S. ambassador to Panama well, had been shot on a street in Panama City? 
in Panama. You know, we, you know, was that Castro trying to send us a message? What would we need to do? Well, you sure wouldn't want the U.S. ambassador's autopsy done in a Panamanian hospital. You would want to take it to a secure military facility. You would want to, you know, you'd have where the autopsy would be done not by private doctors, but by military doctors but, subject to military what, command. Once again, Lamar, the reason why they were doing this was they were afraid that if the American public found out that, an, um, that a U.S. official had been assassinated by, by Castro, that would create so much pressure on the Kennedy administration to attack Cuba in retaliation, much like we attacked Afghanistan after 9-11, that, exactly. that, that that attack on Cuba would be inevitable and that would provoke World War III and that had to be stopped at all at all uh, measures. Ex- ex- exactly right, Tom. That's exactly right. So, so you know, because you know, Nolan said, look, what if we attack Cuba? Then it turns out it was just a common mugging or, or the right. ambassador had been shot by a jealous lover. So he said, we have to control the autopsy. We have to control all of the medical evidence. We have to control the release of any information about that autopsy. And, and there were other things, too. I mean, just in general, anything about that murder had to be filtered and carefully weighed in terms of national security. So I, I'll tell you, again, one more thing about Nolan, then we're going to move into somebody else's secret that we've never named before. Yeah. And I, and, uh, I, and I remember when I found, well, it's <laughs> this, is, this is bringing back so much, uh, so many recollections of all the years that we did all this work on this. That was amazing. Anyhow, back with more of Lamar Walburn in just a moment. John Nolan and all of this stuff, I should have mentioned this. So this is, this is good for just some of your listeners, okay? When I flew up to Washington, you know, ex- still expecting to, you know, probably meet John Nolan for lunch, and if not that, you know, go to his office at his huge law firm, the most powerful law firm in Washington, which means one of the most powerful law firms in all of America, um, I, 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 I had a piece of luggage, I, I'd been getting ready to like buy some really nice luggage, and you told me not to. Do you remember why you told me not to buy nice luggage? I don't. So you were traveling all over the world helping your, uh, with the children's homes that you worked with, yeah. uh, Salem. And, and you said, look, uh, you know, most airports are fine, but some aren't. And, and the fancier and more expensive looking your luggage is, because I was going to get you know, some designer luggage at Marshall's, like on a huge markdown that they had. And he said, you know, if somebody's looking, because in those days, they didn't even match the tags. You were at baggage claim. You could pick up a bag and literally walk out. And this was before 9-11, right? Mm-hmm. And, and you told me, you said, look, the, the, the fancier your bag looks, the more likely it is to get stolen. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, that's good. So I had the most old, beat-up, big suitcase you can imagine. I had lots of books and documents and notes in it. In fact, it was so old and beat-up that the two clasps that held it, one was like a combination clasp that still worked. The other one, there, there was no way to open that clasp with the combination at all. But if you hit that clasp at a certain spot, it would spring open. So I, first, there's like a big delay in the flight getting off, then get to Washington, you know, still in plenty of time uh, for Nolan, and um, uh, uh, we all get to wait on our bags on that flight. We wait an hour almost for our bags. Now, you traveled more than I. An hour is a long time to wait for your bags, right? Mm -hmm. Then the bags start coming down the conveyor belt. They have all been opened and closed and searched. I mean, there's like underwear and lingerie and nightgowns hanging out of the bags. Some are half closed. Some are, you know, fully closed. But you can just see, you know, there's clothes hanging out the sides. Somebody had literally searched every bag on that flight, Hmm. um, including mine, except for the fact they couldn't open that bad clasp, okay? So, so my bag was literally the only, the bag they really wanted to search was the only bag that couldn't get searched. Well, you're assuming. So, 
Well, I, yeah. I, well, <laughs> get 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 this next story that is just just for, for the people listening seconds. right now. So so I go and check into the Grand Hyatt. I go to the private archive, the Assassination Archives and Research Center, which I highly recommend, which is an online thing now. But in those days, it was in this old building near Ford Theater, had the old wire cage elevator. I go there. And 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 I decide I'm going to you know save money, get some exercise. I'm going to, uh, you know, it's it's not that cold. I'm going to I'm going to walk back to the hotel. You know, do a little sightseeing on the way. I don't know Washington. The the Assassination Archives and Research Center is not in the safest part of Washington, but it's not a bad part. I take wrong turns, and I get lost. And I'm wandering around in increasingly rundown, crime-ridden um, parts of Washington. I don't know where to go. Someone starts following me. I get really worried I'm going to get mugged. I turn into an alley. At the opening of the alley is a well-dressed man in a trench coat in a business suit, middle-aged. He says, the Grand Hyatt, go two blocks this way, and then take a right and go another block. (laughs) Amazing. We'll be right back. We're talking with Lamar Waldron. It's so Lamar, pick up the so, story. So, 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 yeah, so two more crucial things about Nolan. So one of the big controversies about the autopsy is that in Dallas, the Dallas doctors, uh, when, a, when a bullet wound is made in the body, it generally you have a small entrance wound, then the bullet expands inside the body, and, and you have a large exit wound. So in Dallas, um, the doctors saw what, what you know, at least one of them said was, was a small entrance wound, it, it basically just below his Adam's apple in the hollow of his throat. Okay? And JFK was having trouble breathing because half his brain had been blown out. So they did a small two to three centimeter tracheotomy incision over that, that small bullet hole. So you could still tell it was a bullet hole, but there was a small tracheotomy incision to try, desperate attempt to try to aid JFK's breathing. When the body, um, when the official autopsy started at Bethesda, and there are, there's a photograph of JFK's body, that two to three centimeter uh, little knee inci- tracheotomy incision over the small bullet hole had been at least doubled in size, almost tripled in size, and, it, and now instead of being a neat little incision that a doctor had carefully done, it's this huge, jagged wound, almost as if, as many people have pointed out, someone had gone into that wound and enlarged it looking for the bullet that made that wound. Okay? So, but, but the Dallas autopsy doctors, that wound was so big, I'm sorry, the Bethesda autopsy doctors, because there were no Dallas autopsy doctors, the, the three main Bethesda autopsy doctors, they didn't even know there was a bullet wound there. There was just this big gaping wound they assumed was a, a crude, quickly done tracheotomy thing that was, that was, you know, two or three times the size it was in Dallas. And so what was that all about? You know, when was that made? Because they didn't make it at the autopsy. It was that way when the autopsy, the official autopsy started. So I asked John Nolan, I said, look, uh, some investigators and writers have, have theorized that there was a very brief and rushed national security autopsy before the main autopsy, the official autopsy, which at that time Oswald was still alive. So, you know, the official autopsy would probably wind up being used at Oswald's trial. You know, so that's, a, that's an official legal thing. But, but so I, I just asked John Nolan, was there, was there like a little brief unofficial national security autopsy before the main autopsy got, the doctors got there and before, um, you know, the official autopsy began? And, and, and John Nolan, being one of America's top lawyers, said, he didn't say, well, what's a national security autopsy? He didn't say, no, there was no national security autopsy. He said, well, you know, there were just so many national security considerations that, that that's, that's, yeah, that's, that's why things had to be done a certain way. And he said it was part of all those plans we had been making, you know, in case an American official was assassinated. So I think to me... Yeah, he, he didn't deny it, and, and he and talked about the national... So, yeah, there so was a if, brief national security autopsy, and get this. 
in that brief national security autopsy, we know from other witnesses who saw it, including a guy who later became an admiral and a guy who later became um, uh, the head of, of, of the Bethesda Hospital, there was a bullet, when they were taking JFK out of the coffin, there was a bullet that rolled out of JFK's back that right. made that back wound six inches below the top of the collar. So, right. so, so if, 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 and, if and, Oswald and as as was the lone shooter, there would not be an entrance wound in the front of Kennedy's throat. Right. It would be he, an exit he was, wound. He was in the Schoolbook depository, either on the behind second him. floor or the sixth floor. Yeah, right. behind him. So, and, and, of course, Dave Powers, one of JFK's closest who aides, who, who was in the limo right behind JFK, said... And, and, and his, his buddy had confirmed to Tip O'Neill, uh, Kenneth O'Donnell, uh, that, yeah, the, 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 fir- the first shot and the, and the horrible fatal headshot, they both came from the grassy knoll. Right. Dave Powers yeah. told me that. I, yeah, he I told sat you that. in I, his I think office. you were sitting in one of JFK's rocking chairs. That's correct. Because Dave Powers was the head of the JFK Presidential Library, and somebody who was working on their newsletter had been to our seminar, and you, we, we, use, we use that connection. And, 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 yeah, so you're sitting there with, with – so, so John Nolan was Robert Kennedy's closest aide. Dave Powers was JFK's closest aide and in the car right behind JFK with, with Kenny O'Donnell. And, and he told you, yep, yep, first shot and the horrible fatal headshot, yep, they came from the front. And later confirmed it. So, uh, uh, yeah. yeah. So this is this – is, uh... so, so that's why there was that national security autopsy. That's why so much medical evidence right. has disappeared. Bottom line here, got to make sure it was some lone shooter. The first of the two dozen people that work with John and Robert Kennedy, who basically gave us the high-level view of what happened and why everything was kept so secret, because we were getting ready to stage a coup against Fidel Castro on December 1st, 1963, that would be led by the number three man in Cuba, the head of the Cuban army. And Castro's death would be blamed on a Russian or a Russian sympathizer. And, and those sources were, in the order we talked about them, and we interviewed them, were JFK Secretary of State Dean Rusk, uh, uh, Bobby Kennedy's close friend and the top Cuban exile aide in the secret operation, um, Harry Williams, and John Nolan, who was Bobby Kennedy's closest aide, who saw every top secret piece of paper that went to Bobby Kennedy, went through John Nolan. Um, and, and then that brings us to uh, the other man that, that confirmed uh, that Commander Almeida was the guy who was going to lead the coup plan, and that was, uh, he was a general when you talked to him, I think it was back in 1992, General Oliva, and we had we had written up these questions, and we were just going to kind of slip, you were going to slip Commander Almeida's name into the conversation, just in a matter-of-fact way. You weren't right. going to say, so who was the guy? No, you were just going to ask a question that, that almost assumed that, that did assume. That, that General Oliva knew who Almeida was and that Almeida was the top guy in Cuba working on the coup plan. Right. So now I will pitch it back to you because sure. when, as soon as you, you ask him that question, yeah, things Yeah, all hell breaks loose. Well, and also just to put that into the context, at that time that you and I were writing this book, we assumed that this plan died with John Kennedy or, or in the months immediately well, and, thereafter. And, and, and I think by that time... You know, I was generally aware that Commander Almeida had not been seen in Cuba for at least, uh, I think, by that time, but by about three years or so. Right. So, so, the so we thought he was, was dead. He was dead. Right. So here I am, assuming that Almeida is dead, and assuming that this plan, this this top secret coup plan that it was supposed to be executed on December first, nineteen sixty three, was was a dead plan. And so I'm sitting in the office of the, this brigadier general in Washington, D.C., who was going to lead, had been at Fort Benning, you know, with the Cuban troops that they were going to bring into Cuba uh, after the death of Castro in, in on right, 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 because he, December he was 1st, a Cuban-American. He'd been a leader at the Bay of Pigs. Right. He was black. He was going to lead that multiracial right. brigade in right after. And the- he was such a sweet guy. I mean, we, we had this wonderful conversation. And then I said, so one of the things that Harry mentioned to me was that General Juan Almeida, the, the commander of the Cuban military, was in on the deal and was going to, uh, you know, take over Cuba when John Kennedy was assassinated. And at that point... He jerks upright. He walks around his desk. He, I'm sitting in a chair opposite his desk. Grabs me. I, my recollection is he grabbed my lapel and essentially drags me over to, this, to the window where this air conditioner is running and says, 
Don't you ever say that name again. That is an active operation. That man is still around. This is top secret, and you could be executed for talking about this. Or words to that effect. That's my recollection. So back to you, Lamar. At that point, and by, by the way, at that point, we had this oh crap moment and realized maybe we have to novelize this. I mean, this is why Almeida's name does not appear in the first two books, because neither one of us wanted to go to prison for the rest of our lives. Right. You know, so, so basically, I mean, Nolan was so dismissive of, of I mean, it, it's like the fact that Oswald could have done this, you know, it's just like that was just not even worthy of, you know, consideration. So, so bottom line is the files were supposed to be released back in the late 1990s. The CIA and all the other agencies stalled. And then they were still supposed to be released after that. They weren't. They were supposed to be released in 2017. They weren't. Trump kicked it to 2018. Joe Biden has now kicked it until December 15th of this year, but he's given the agencies an out. If you ever want to see those documents, though, call the White House, call your member of Congress, there you call go. your senator. Lamar Waldron. Never get to see those the, documents. The, 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 th the three books. Lamar and I together wrote Ultimate Sacrifice and Legacy of Secrecy, although Lamar did the heavy lifting. And uh, Lamar has since written Watergate, The Hidden History. It's a brilliant trilogy. Lamar, and, thanks so and, much. And the hidden history of the JFK assassin. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. Yes, the hidden <laughs> okay. history of the JFK assassin. Thank you, Lamar. And thank you all for watching us. Get out there, get active. Tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.